0: Well, last week we had the privilege of taking a look at Luke, really just the first sentence of the gospel account of Luke, one long sentence, four verses uh, that we had a chance to take a look at, and in last week's time we spent a little bit of time unpacking the purpose of Luke and why he was writing this gospel to us, and in those two purposes really we looked at Luke through two different lenses. One was Luke, the historian, him. Uh, as an accurate historian looking at the events of history that had unfolded in his lifetime, the events that he had both lived through and heard of through eyewitnesses, and how he was going to record an accurate account of these things for the purpose of writing about them to Theophilus, so that Theophilus could have certainty about the things which were written. And then we also looked at Luke through the lens of Luke the historian, or Luke the theologian, rather, and how he had certain theological ideas and certain theological uh, adv- I- certain theological ideas to advance in the writing of his gospel. That he was going to talk about justification and prayer and the movement of the Holy Spirit and how the church is dependent on all these things. And most importantly, Luke is seeking to, especially for Theophilus, to give him assurance of his salvation. And in doing so, he's gonna write a lot about the inclusion of the Gentiles within the promised Jewish Messiah. How Jesus came not only as a Messiah to the Jewish people, and the answered king through the line of David, but also as the savior of the whole world. As Luke, particularly through his parables and through all of his other stories, will tell us about uh, that this was really one of the main reasons that Jesus came to the earth. And in doing so, he tells us that he's going to write for us an orderly account. And here tonight, we get to take a look at the first story that takes place in this orderly account that Luke is trying to write to us, to Theophilus. And uh, through generations past, we get to read about it. And it's interesting that in this very first story, Luke could have started in all different kinds of places. And if you look at just the three other Gospels that we have access to, you can see the different places in which this story could begin. He could have, like Matthew, began with the lineage of Jesus, starting from the prophets of old and moving through and tracing the the actual birth uh, rite that Jesus followed, the line, uh, really tracing him through to the line of David as that route. You could have, uh, like Mark, started with john uh, the baptist public ministry and how john the baptist comes to prepare a way for the lord and then he immediately says this is the messiah this is the lamb of god and then started off there or like uh, the gospel of john does he could have started it at the beginning of all time the gospel of john starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and so he could have started it there but luke in seeking to write an orderly account has a specific reason why he begins the account here with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and with the prophecy of that announcement coming. There's a reason why he does this and why he starts it here. So we should take a close look at why this story is here, why it's the first in the story of the orderly account that Luke writes for us. And really to understand this and ask the question, why does Luke start with the prophecy of John's birth? uh, We really have to take a look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So if you will turn to the very end of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is the, the word that the prophet Malachi writes. This is actually the last prophetic revelation that we get. And then we have 400 years of silence before John the Baptist. And so in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3, the word says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 points to us a picture and a prophecy that then hangs in silence for 400 years awaiting its fulfillment. And the fulfillment of that prophecy, the messenger who's who's going to be sent to prepare the way of the Lord, is John the Baptist. That is the messenger who's going to be sent. And so we can't start the story of John the Baptist in an orderly account with his public ministry, because before his public ministry, there's the prophecy of John the Baptist and what he's going to do. That this child was not born attained a certain role and then afterwards the story is being told that before this child was even born an angel showed up to his father and told him exactly who this child was going to be and exactly what he was going to put do in redemptive history so when luke starts his orderly account he starts here with the prophecy of john the baptist and this is important for us to know because we we tend to read the bible and we read the bible especially in the gospel accounts we read about parables and miracles and healings and we tend to think That in all of history, these were just commonplace events, that there were angels all over the place, that everyone who was lame was walking, and that there was all kinds of miraculous things happening all the time. But if you look at the history of the nation of Israel and really at the whole picture of the world, there's only certain really narrow bands in history where prophecy and the miraculous and gifts of the spirit and things like this occur. So if you, if you go way back, you can go to Moses, who's really the first person who through him, miracles are occurring. There were other miracles and miraculous things that happened before that time, but Moses is really the first person who through the 10 plagues that he does to Egypt and through the wilderness, uh, you can start to see how God is moving through Moses and doing miraculous things like parting the Red Sea. But this was not a normal experience. The purpose of this was for everyone to be aware that God was doing something unique at this moment in time and that no one can attribute it to anything else. God says to Moses that I'm going to make my my glory great through what I'm going to do to Egypt, through what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And so this is his intent. This is what he sets out to do. And so miracles mark what God is specifically working to do. And then you really, after Moses closes off, you don't hear about a lot of miracles happening after that for actually a long period of time. The next prophets who do miracles are Elijah and Elisha and their ministry. And they do miraculous things. They stand up against the prophets of Baal. They call down fire from heaven. They do all kinds of cool things like that. But again, that's another narrow band in redemptive history. And then after Elisha, who's the last of those two, you have 800 years before the next miracles occur. And that next miracle that occurs is the conception of John the Baptist. the angel comes and declares this is going to be a miraculous conception and a miracle rightly defined is something that could not be explained in any way through a natural occurrence. It defies our understanding of law. It's when heaven invades in earth and the supernatural is the only explanation for what's going on. And so for us westerners who grow up in a world where science and natural law defines all of what we know, It's very hard for us to understand miracles. And often when we look at scripture, we try to make excuses for why things happened the way they happened. And we try to find natural explanations for how these things were to occur. But no, these are miracles. John was conceived after Elizabeth's womb was closed. Jesus was born to a virgin. These are miraculous happenings that occurred. And this is a miracle that happens 800 years after the last documented miracles. And this marks for us a new season in redemptive history upon which Jesus is going to be the ultimate source of that miracle. And he, in his public ministry, is going to do countless miracles. As as John, in his gospel, writes that if all the books in the world were to contain what Jesus uh, did, there wouldn't be enough books to hold all those things. Miracle after miracle after miracle, healing. And this is a unique band in redemptive history. So as we study Luke, I don't want you to assume that it's commonplace what's happening here the reason people flock to Jesus, the reason the Pharisees are so afraid of Jesus is because he is doing things that they cannot explain save for that God is working through him. And so this is unique. It's a unique point in redemptive history. But the first miracle after that 800 years of having no miracles is the conception of John the Baptist, which at this moment is announced. And then the angels, the last time we've seen those on the scene has been 500 years. In a vision to the prophet Ezekiel was the last time an angel was recorded through the prophets. And now we have an angel showing up on the scene to deliver the word of God. And the last time the word of God was ever delivered was in the book of Malachi, which was 400 years prior. And if you would just imagine with me how long of a time 800 years is, and 500 years is, and 400 years is. And the people of God are waiting. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're being faithful, and they're waiting. And in that time, in that 400 year silence, you have parties that raise up in the Israelite group who start to lean on legalism as their means of salvation as opposed to faith in God. And we call them the Pharisees and the Sadducees and there are scholars who know the book, but they don't believe all of the other things like righteousness through faith. But there are some who are priests who do believe in those still true uh, teachings of the Jewish religion. You see, Judaism and Christianity were not religions that were at odds with one another. Christ came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And so you get Jews who are waiting still for the Lord to move. And so the miraculous is one of the ways in which we mark that God is moving and that you can't deny that this is God who's doing it. This is not Luke inventing anything. This is not John or Elizabeth uh, or uh, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth coming up with anything. This is uniquely God who's moving in this way. So Luke begins his gospel by explaining the miraculous events, and he starts off his orderly account as a historian, and he's gonna mount his historical credibility on on a story that relies on a miracle and the appearance of an angel. And so if you're thinking about this through a modern lens, you would think that he's right now committing suicide in terms of his credibility. Because at this point in time, he's just said he believes in the miraculous and he believes in angels. Two things which today would get you kicked out of most of academia. But he's saying through this account that you can't take the rest of my historical accounts and comb through it and get rid of the miraculous, get rid of the supernatural, and still have a cohesive piece of history. If you're going to believe me, if you're going to take my word at face value, you have to believe in all that I'm talking about. And he doesn't embellish the appearance of an angel. He doesn't embellish the miraculous. He just says, there's an angel. The angel is standing to the right of the altar. That that the angel announces this birth. And he says it is commonplace. He's not dressing up the story. He's not trying to blow it up out of proportion. He's saying there was an angel who shows up to this prophet in this certain period of time. And Luke, the historian, begins his account in this way. And he sets the context for us before he gets into all this. And he says in verse 5, it's in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And in the days of Herod is an important contextual clue for us because in redemptive history, again, the Israelites are in a really dark time because this King Herod is not a Jewish king. He's called King of the Jews. He calls himself Herod the Great, but he's not even a Jew. In fact, he's an Edomite, which means he's a descendant of Esau. And so in order to gain credibility with the Jews, this Herod marries into one of the Jewish royal families who had taken over in this 400-year silence of God, and he marries into one of their bloodlines. And he's instituted over the Jewish people, over the region of Judea, by the Romans, because the Romans had conquered this province. And so they institute local leaders and local authorities to reign over the people. But really, he's a puppet king of the Romans. He's not really doing anything with the Jews' best interest in mind. And so the Jews have this political tension that begins to mount. Because if you remember, we just came out of Hosea, they trust in their own strength and in their own might. This is one of their downfalls as a people. And so you have political religious terrorism going on within the Jewish people against the Roman government. And this begins to color in for us when Jesus comes on the scene later, and he starts saying things uh, and saying he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the one to come. People start identifying him as this, and they think what's going to happen is there's going to be a political uprising, and there's going to be a political overthrowing of the government and a reclaiming of Jerusalem. And this is not what happens. Even on the night of his betrayal, some of his disciples are still confused about the agenda that's going on. And so, this colors in the context for us a little bit that the Jews are in a really dark time in history. They haven't heard from the Lord in 400 years. They are being ruled by an enemy of the people, they are being ruled by a pagan government overall. But this Herod did do some good things. He rebuilt the temple for the Jews, he built all kinds of wonderful things for them, he was a very benevolent ruler. But he was also a very wicked ruler, and we can read about this in Matthew, where we see that this Herod, in uh, in fear and paranoia of his kingship being taken over, he kills all the Jewish boys two years and old and under, just to make sure, in case, a child won't take over his throne. This is how paranoid, this is how wicked this Herod was. But there's also many Herod's that we'll read about in the Gospels. And so this is one of two who's mentioned in the book of Luke, and we'll get to the other one as we get there. But this is not, not every time you read a Herod in the Gospel, it's the same Herod. So you have to uh, take time to parse out which Herod you're actually dealing with at that moment. But this is Herod the Great, Herod who rules during this time. So this is at the end or the tail end of his reign, and here is Herod uh, who is the ruler of Israel. So we get a few details about Zachariah, we get a few details about Elizabeth, and we're starting to color in the story as it's going to unfold. I'm going to go down to verse 8, and we're going to start looking at some more details about Zachariah, some more details about what he's exactly going to do in this narrative. And it says, now, while he was still serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And here I'm going to pause. So there's a lot of details and context that Luke is coloring in for us. Remember, he's a Gentile who doesn't know the Jewish customs originally. And he's writing to a Gentile who probably also isn't familiar with the Jewish customs. So he's going to take time to explain what's happening and what's going on. So he says, now, uh, just so you know, Zechariah, who's a priest, he has to serve in the, in the temple. And it says that while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, so the division of Abijah is one of 24 divisions in the in the Jewish uh, priesthood, and there's 18,000 priests, and they would rotate. There's so many priests they can't all serve in the temple at the same time, so they would rotate, and usually about twice a year, for a week, they would go to Jerusalem, they'd serve in the temple for a week, and they would ret- return back to their homes, and so he's starting to color in the context. He's saying he's a priest, he's serving during this period of time in the temple, he's doing this specific job. And one of the things that he has to do as a priest, one of the privileges that he has, is being chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. For a priest to enter the temple and to burn incense was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This was something so rare, so special, that you couldn't be chosen by other priests to do it. You couldn't have the permanent job of burning incense in the temple. The only person who could choose you for this specific role was God himself. And so among the priests, they cast lots, And the lot would decide which priest was to enter and to burn incense. And so here, Zechariah has his name called. And his name is called by lot, by chance, his name comes up. And he has this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense before the Lord right next to the Holy of Holies in the temple. One of the most sacred things that a priest could do. The only thing more sacred than that was to be a high priest and to enter directly into the Holy Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year. But Zachariah has this unique opportunity to burn incense before the Lord. And we get another detail about Zechariah and his uh, piety to the Lord, in that he married a woman named Elizabeth, who was one of the daughters of Aaron. So not only is he a priest, he also marries a woman who's not going to hinder his priestly duties in any way, because she's all on board for the priesthood. In fact, her fathers, her brothers, her uncles, every man in her life would have been a priest, because she's one of the daughters of Aaron who was the original high priest of the time of the exodus from Egypt. And so she's in this lineage, so everyone she knows would have been a priest. And so Zechariah is not only a priest by trade, he's also a priest with his whole life, and so he's going to marry someone who's on board for that. And so he chooses Elizabeth, and her name is actually the name of Aaron's original wife. So she is, her family is very much about the priesthood. They're very uh, loyal to the Jewish religion. And we are even colored in further how loyal they both are to the Jewish religion and that they're both deemed as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, I think it's worth time to step aside and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean here when he says they were both righteous before the Lord? Because if you read scripture for any length of time, you're going to bump into other places where it says, where Paul writes, there is no one who's righteous, no, not one. So is Luke right now disagreeing with Paul on righteousness and who is and who isn't righteous? It's a fair question to ask. And I think it's, it takes a, it's a good idea for us to take time to step aside and ask this question and really examine what he means here when he says they were both righteous before God. And to kind of paint this picture out, I want to take a step back. In, in the English language, we do things like this as well. So Paul here isn't, or sorry, Luke here is not defying Paul. Paul would have been Luke's tutor, really, Luke, remember, studied with Paul, stayed by his side, even through prison, through beatings, up until really right before Paul's death. And so Luke is not going to defy Paul's teaching on righteousness. He's going to use the term righteousness in a different sense. And in English, we do this. So, for example, if someone is really, really, really tired at the end of a long day of work, or maybe at the end of a long week of work, or a long season of life of work, they might say, I'm dead. I'm dead. And what they mean by that is not I'm physically in the grave or my life is over. What they mean is I'm so tired that to put it on the extreme end of the spectrum, I'm going to describe myself as dead. So we use an ultimate word, death, to describe a state of extreme, uh, that's extremely on that end of the scale, an extreme state of tiredness. The word dead really just means to no longer be alive. But we will use that word to describe a certain state. Another way that we will use this word, uh, another English word, is we can say, I'm starving. And the word starving means someone is actually dying of hunger. But often, if you're just a little bit hungry and there's enough good food around you, before you sit down to eat, you'll say, I'm starving. And what you're describing is not you yourself at that moment are dying of hunger. You're describing a state of awareness of hunger, such an awareness of hunger, that you're going to describe yourself as starving. You're on the continuum, not dying of hunger, But you're not full either so you're trying to describe an extreme end of that continuum and so here luke is describing not ultimate righteousness before the lord he's saying they are righteous and they walk blameless as two people who are in the extreme end of following obedience to god two people who are extremely obedient who follow the statutes who follow the commandments who obey the law and who do it faithfully And they do it day in and day out. And Zechariah serves as a priest twice a year in the temple. And Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest family. And they are both righteous before the Lord. Which means to say that they are obedient to the commandments of God. This is unlike the righteousness of the Pharisees, in which they, in their right standing, try to earn favor with God and think that by their works, they can stand righteous before God. That's what the Pharisees believe, that to obey all the commandments, they would then stand justified before the Lord. But Luke's not saying that about these two people. In fact, as we'll come to find out later in the story, Zechariah is not without sin. He's not without sin. But it still describes him as righteous. Other places in scripture that will describe people as righteous, we will read about Job in the book of Job being described as righteous. But he himself, according to his own testimony, says he's not without sin. And even Abraham, we see, is described as righteous. But Abraham does all kinds of sinful things. Doubting God and giving up his wife because he doesn't want to get killed. So he's not a perfect man, but he's described as being righteous before the Lord. This is not righteousness in the sense that Paul says there is no one who's righteous. Or this is not righteous in the sense that we say that Jesus was the only one who's righteous. This is righteous as talking about an extreme end of obedience. Blameless here describes a rare class of faithful obedience. There's really only a handful of people in Scripture who are described in this way. To be described in this way is a rare honor. And so Luke is going to take time to explain that these two are righteous because the very next thing he says about them is that they are both barren and without children, which would have been one of the greatest sources of shame for a Jew. And according to some Jewish documents, that this was actually one of the ways in which God rejected someone as being a Jew, was to give them no children. You see, children were an inheritance from the Lord. They were a great blessing from God. And in Scripture, children are always to be understood to be a blessing from God. And so to be a Jew, to be someone who is so faithful in serving the Lord, and to be without children, is to bear a great social shame. And the assumption would be that there is some secret sin in the life of either Elizabeth or Zechariah or both, that God is now not going to bless them with children because of this sin. And so here, they were going to bear a great shame, and so Luke is going to say they're barren, but they're righteous. They're righteous even though they are suffering from the great shame of barrenness. We're not to understand their barrenness as a source of sin that they're being punished for. It's really a source of preparation that God is going to use to mightily bless them and really the rest of the world. But Elizabeth and Zechariah are both deemed righteous. And what's interesting about that is To be a righteous Jew was to trust ultimately God for your righteousness. You see, I I mentioned this earlier that uh, Christianity did not come to thwart Judaism or to undo it. Jesus himself says, I did not come to do away with the law. He was the Jewish Messiah, first and foremost. And when he comes to the Jews, he comes at the end of a Jewish prophecy where where the Lord says, wait, I'm going to send someone who's going to be my son, who's going to atone for your sins. And if you don't believe me on this, let's turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. This is a Jewish prophet, someone who the Pharisees would have been very familiar with, but who unfortunately they did not understand. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. The prophet Isaiah writes this. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 61, verse 10, we get a picture of what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. That to be a Jew was to not only yourself be as obedient as you could be to the law, but ultimately it was to let go of those pieces in which you knew you fell short and to say that ultimately I need to trust God and God alone to fill in the gaps there. And actually here Isaiah describes it as being totally covered with the righteousness of God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. Luke will later write in a parable about the prodigal son who at the end of that parable is clothed by the father and in that clothing he is deemed as standing as a son of that family. This is the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And a faithful righteous Jew who studied all things closely and was waiting for God to move would have been waiting for a Messiah to come and to do exactly what's described here. In fact, if you turn with me a few chapters back to Isaiah 53 we get an even better description of that same servant who's to come. Isaiah 53, and we'll pick it up in verse 4. Where this person who's going to make way the righteousness of the people, this is how he makes the righteousness of the people, where all people can stand as righteous before God. He says it this way, about this Messiah who's to come. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To be a Jew, to believe the prophets, to believe the Old Testament revelation was to believe that a a messiah was coming and when this messiah comes that you would believe on that messiah because you were always waiting by faith for god to take your sins and and hold back on them pass over your sins and eventually there would be a sacrifice who would one day atone for sins elizabeth and zachariah would know better than anyone else that the blood of lambs and goats do not take away sin because year after year after year Sacrifices were made in the temple, and the Jewish people are no closer to salvation. They would know better than anyone else that this was true. And there are a few righteous Israelites, a few remnant, who are waiting for this Messiah. And we will bump into them all over the place in the story of Luke. But Luke is writing this to tell us that, by the way, this is not a new religion, Theophilus. This is the completion of a years-old religion a religion before the beginning of time. The Old Testament and the New Testament saints are both saved in the exact same way, which is to trust in either the coming righteousness or in our case, to trust in the already come righteousness of Jesus Christ on the cross. We cannot earn righteousness and right standing before God. For us to be deemed as righteous is for us to be obedient to the law, but to acknowledge that even in our obedience, we cannot earn favor before God, that we are ultimately reliant and dependent on him to stand in our place as Abraham when he walks Isaac up to the altar says that there will be a sacrifice provided and he trusts that God will do this and he trusts the word of the Lord even scripture says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness faith salvation by faith salvation by faith alone was always preached in scripture it's not a new doctrine that was invented by Paul or from the minds of other theologians. It has always been the case in Scripture that faith and faith alone save. And so we understand the righteousness of Elizabeth, the righteousness of Zechariah, and then we are told that they have no child, which is a great social shame on them, and now they stand in a culture that views them as unrighteous, but they are deemed as righteous before God. And so there's a question in there which is, who are you trying to be righteous before? Would you rather people consider you righteous and see you as a holy person or see you as a good person? Or do you rather not care about all that stuff and you just care about who God sees you as? Some theologians have said it this way. It's been attributed to a lot of different people. Who someone is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing else. That he is and nothing else. It doesn't matter because at that quiet time before the Lord, you can't fabricate it. You can't fake it. You can't do anything any different. People won't know. It's you and God. God judges rightly. People don't. People screw up judgments all the time. We know this because there are people who make it faithfully in ministry careers their whole lives and then are found out in the end. And they deceived all of the people around them, but not God. He was never deceived. And in verse 8, we're going to pick up the story there, and we'll move a little quicker through this part. He says, now he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. You see, the priest goes into the temple to burn incense. And when they burn the incense, they would sprinkle the incense on the coals and a huge smoke would come up and it would come out the top of the temple. And at that exact same time, when the people saw the smoke come out the top of the temple, They would all outside fall on their faces and pray to the Lord. And the incense and the prayers are both symbols of one another. But the incense symbolizes the prayers of the people of the Lord wafting up to heaven. And so the Jewish people would have prayed at the hour of incense. And then in verse 11, it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's standing right there. Not a vision. Not, he's not. He's not taken up into another space and has a vision. The angel manifestly appears before him, just to the right of the altar. He can identify the location of where that angel's at. And he and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and a fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, as all angels do, as they introduce themselves to people, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers for your prayer has been heard." And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And then the question is, well, what was the exact prayer that Zechariah was praying that was heard and was answered? It's a good question, because based on Zechariah's response, we can reasonably assume that he probably wasn't in that moment praying for a child for him and Elizabeth. Because if he was at that moment praying in faith for that child, and then the angel shows up and says, your prayer has been answered, his response would have most likely been a lot different. From Zachariah and Elizabeth, this was likely a decades-old prayer, one that they had faithfully prayed year after year after year, day after day after day, and had long since dismissed as, God's just not going to answer that one. But the angel shows up and says, Zachariah, your prayer has been answered. Because the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness. He, does not, he is never late, he's never early, he's exactly on time, and he acts exactly as he sees fit. And an angel shows up, the first one in 500 years, and God speaks for the first time in 400 years. And the message from the angel, from the mouth of God, is that there will be a son who's going to be born to this couple who's been barren their whole lives, beyond the age of conception. And this son is going to be that forerunner. It says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The angel says, Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. So not only has Zechariah's long-standing prayer for a son been heard, and at this point in time is now answered, but John or Zechariah, in his role as a priest is going to be given John as the answer to the prayers of the people. Which, as a priest burning incense and as the people outside are praying, they're praying for the coming Messiah. They're praying for the Lord to break his silence. They're praying for the silence to finally stop and for the Lord to come in power, come with his Messiah, and come in the full force of heaven. And the angel shows up to Zechariah and he says, your prayer has been answered. And he could mean both prayers. He could mean both the personal prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth from a long time ago, and he could also mean the prayer of the people and the prayer that Zechariah would have been praying at that exact moment in his priestly duties, which was for the people, for God to come down, for him to break his silence, for the people to finally once again hear from the Lord, for the Messiah to be delivered to them. He says, your prayer has been heard. And here we come to the realization that the barren state of Elizabeth was not a punishment, but rather it was a blessing. The son, who they will have, has an extremely important role to play in salvation history. He has an extremely important role to play, and we're going to take a look deeper into this story as the weeks come. But I would like to invite the worship team up as we close tonight. And we're going to reflect a little bit on some of these truths. And in, in terms of application, there's all kinds of ways we can go with this. There's all kinds of things to draw out of this text. But the one that really landed on me this week was that prayer from, jo- from Zachariah and from Elizabeth, that years-old prayer. And I wonder, us in today, when we work in a world where time is of the essence, and if something doesn't get done that day, we consider it never to be done, how often are we faithful to pray to God year after year after year? the same thing. To make our requests known to God, because God is faithful to answer requests. In his perfect timing, in his right timing, he is faithful to answer requests. And so as a, as a means of reflection, I would like you to to think about that, that prayer was that answered for the people, and how God is faithful to answer that prayer for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, and how he ought to also be faithful today to answer our prayers as well, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then the answer to that prayer that the angel fully spells out, we're going to read more about next week. Would you close with me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for your word today. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have spoken in ages past and you broke your silence at this moment in history that we get to, through your grace, read together and study together. Lord, I thank you that the breaking of your silence was just really the, 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 the precursor, the foretaste of all that was to come through the rest of salvation history. Lord, I thank you that through the angel, through the priest, through the barrenness of Elizabeth, that you would make your name great through that son. And ultimately, Lord, that you would make your name great even today through all of the sufferings and the pains and the struggles that we have that we would be aware of the fact that there's nothing that we suffer for in vain and there's nothing that happens to us in vain, but it is all part of your plan for redemption. That nothing surprises you, God. And we thank you for that truth. In your name, amen.